Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president and associate professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students here at RTS. Hi, Peter. Hi, Scott. Good to see you again. Good to be here. Good to see you, too. I'm also joined by Tommy Keene, associate professor of New Testament and academic dean at RTS. Hi, Tommy. Hi, great to be here. And I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament at RTS and senior pastor of New City PCA Church here in the Tysons area. Hi, Paul. Always good to be with you all. Always good to have you. Um, As we are moving into our third episode now of the uh, faculty podcast, we're going to delve into some deep issues particularly uh, the issue of theodicy. So there have been a lot of talk out there in social media. I've seen uh, my Twitter feed blowing up. I'm a bit of a lurker on Twitter, so I can't say I'm interacting with all of these, but even lurking, I'm seeing my Twitter feed blow up and my uh, emails from friends who are asking, what do I think about this or that article? There's a lot of discussion out there by Um, I think I can say well-meaning Christians trying to explain how are we to think about God's role in the midst of this COVID pandemic. So I want to open that up to the group. One of the things I read recently is that um, N.T. Wright wrote a piece for Time Magazine. Glad to see the Time Magazine still in print. There's some silver lining there in the midst of all of this. Uh, But N.T. Wright did write um, a a piece basically arguing for theodicy, and uh, it caused a bit of a discussion out there um, in the the social media world. Dr. Keene, what do you think about N.T. Wright's approach to this issue of theodicy? Yeah, in many many respects, I I thought uh, the intent there was helpful and, and some of the precise, you know, his goal um, in, in reminding us that we don't always have to have an explanation of why God is, is doing what he is doing, R- remembering, uh, uh, remembering that he's doing something, but we don't always know, uh, know what he is up to. I appreciated that he was encouraging us to lament. Uh, I think that that's an important thing, particularly for us as Reformed people, to remember even in the midst of the providence of God, which we would affirm, uh, you know, in, in great detail and with with theological vigor, and as a hill that we would die on, and yet we also recognize that 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 sad things are sad, that they are not good, and that God doesn't like them uh, any more uh, than we do. And I think that's the third thing that he mentioned was. The, that God laments, that, that God is sorrowful over human pain and human sinfulness um, and, uh, and tragedy and suffering. Um, you know, we, I'm reminded in particular of, of Christ weeping, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Christ weeping at the tomb. Uh, he, he fully knows what's going to happen, and yet death is evil and it is not good and uh and christ laments over it so i thought those were uh, good things that he had mentioned there there was a number of kind of problematic 
uh, lines as well. At one point, he implied that God doesn't know. Uh, not only do we not know, but God doesn't know. Um, that does not give me hope. Um, but um, so there were a couple of problematic lines that I thought needed to be to be rephrased, while nevertheless affirming the the call to, in the midst of suffering and tragedy, um, to own our sor- our sorrows. Yeah, he, he took that point about Christ's human nature, crying at the loss, you know, at, at human loss, and right. did seem to kind of advance that now, sort of maximize it for all of divine nature. Dr. Lee, coming from an Old Testament perspective, what anything strike you about, and we don't have to talk about right this whole time, but anything strike you about that article or other things you've been seeing here in the space of uh, you know describing God's role in this uh, current global predicament? Uh, yeah, I agree. Well, I actually agree with a lot of what uh, Dr. Keene here, what Tommy just said in uh, his comments regarding uh, that article by N.T. Wright. Um, he had a lot of good things to say there. I, I find it really um, uh, intriguing and, and quite satisfying that not not just anti right, but uh, so many blogs and comments that are being made out there uh, in light of um, uh, in light of the uh, this pandemic. Uh, so many of people are going to the Psalms. Uh, anti right is just one, but Psalm. Everybody is going back to the Psalms, where they're uh, sources of comfort. They're all going back to the laments and and trying to find words of uh, assurance and comfort and, and relief there. And, and N.T. Wright is just sort of one of them. If, if there's one particular uh, point that I'd, I'd want to highlight, uh, and, my, and perhaps even, well, I guess disagree with what N.T. Wright was suggesting, is this sort of, you know, uh, God doesn't really offer a solution in the midst of our trials type thing, but all we have to do is just learn to lament. Uh, as if uh, sorrow is the only thing that is before us. That, that, now, that might be true in some cases um, where uh, even the psalms, uh, you know, it's true that there are certain cases, places where it seems that uh, uh, there is no resolution. The psalm begins and ends in um, uh, without any relief or any resolution to the conflict that the psalmist was struggling with. But there are other psalms that, that do have resolution. Uh, we have a whole series of uh, those Thanksgiving Psalms that are even based on the fact that God responded to a cry of prayer. He answered the psalmist is now offering up a word of gratitude, uh, a vow that he is fulfilling, you know, something like that. So to, to just sort of make this blanket statement and say that God uh, n- never resolves conflict just seems to be really simplistic. And, and just What is happens. lament? What, what is, just for people who are listening who may not have taken an Old Testament poets class, what is the an, a lament when we talk about being, you know, revisiting laments in our worship? What does that mean? The idea of a lament biblically, I mean, there is a Hebrew word for lament. Uh, it's the word kinah. Uh, I don't think we have to be too technical in, in our definitions of, of a lament. Um, I don't even know if the Bible does, truthfully. Uh, the Bible seems to use the word kinah broadly in terms of um, uh, penitent psalms of repentance of sin, uh, songs that um, uh, uh, 
that are mourning over destructions of cities, uh, death of loved ones. It, it's a sad song that, that gives uh, God's people an opportunity to, to bring their sorrows, their trials, their hardships, their uh, burdens to the Lord in prayer, in song, and to find comfort in the fact that they worship a sovereign God. Mm. The, um, what seems to be important, though, in the lament not, is that, um, uh, that, yes, sometimes God brings resolution to their conflict. Uh, if there is a trial, we pray to the Lord to resolve it. He resolves it. Uh, we praise him for it. Uh, but yeah, I think that N.T. Wright is correct, that there are times when there are certain psalms where there is no resolve. Uh, the psalmist ends, begins, and ends in lament, um, and there has been no resolution to his initial trial uh, of hardship. In that sense, he is correct. We don't want to, you know, we can't take that and just absolutize that and say all of the sad songs that we have in Scripture in the Bible are like that. that that's not true. Uh, but that does seem to be an important theme in the Psalms, that the ultimate uh, hope that we have is not in the resolution to the source of our problems. The, the ultimate source of hope that we have is in, is in the Lord. Uh, so it's interesting how the psalmist, how they, they will look to the Lord in the midst of their trials. The trial is still there, but they're comforted because they now are, have the Lord, you see. That's the thing. It's not a horizontal resolution. It's a, it's a vertical understanding that, uh, that God is your comfort. And once they come to realize that, they realize that ultimately they don't need a res resolution necessarily to their hardship. They, they, they have God and that makes all the difference in their lives. Yeah. Tommy. I'm so thrilled to see uh, so much concern and, and kind of the recovery of lament in response to this. Um, but also, you know, over the last five, six years, we've really seen, I think, a renewed interest among evangelicals and Presbyterians to, to own this category of literature. Maybe, Peter, that goes a long way to explaining the renewed interest in the Psalms, since that's where we really get that lament. Uh, obviously, it's all, all through poetry, um, in, interestingly. Um, but one thing that I haven't seen, and which I would love to hear more reflection on at some point from, from, from the crowd is, you know, there is a, a way to lament honorably and there's a way to lament dishonorably. There is a kind of a, there's a difference between lamentation and grumbling. Um, and I think particularly of like uh, Hebrews 5, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications without cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And I'm thinking of the, uh, of Gethsemane there. Um, and he was heard by God because of his reverence. And, you know, just some, be interesting to hear some dialogue at some point about what does the reverent complaint or lament or uh, what does that look like before the Lord? Um, and, and Peter, I thought that was a wonderful point that you made that really what brings about that reverence is, is that vertical dimension of, you know, yes, waiting for God to, to deliver me, but also realizing that God himself is, is the object of, of glory and love and, and comfort. Yeah, uh, Calvin used to speak of, uh, in his commentary on the Psalms, uh, the distinction between a, a sorrowful lament of that versus Israel in the wilderness, you know, that are just grumbling and sin. 
Uh, and uh, the way he made that distinction is really a matter of a, it, it's really a heartfelt matter because superficially, shallowly, they're going to look exactly the same. Uh, but the question is going to be a, is it one, is it, is it an act of faith that's trusting in the Lord as opposed to one that is sort of blame shifting upon, upon the Lord? Uh, and where you have Israel in the wilderness is grumbling, complaining, blaming God of his absence and so forth. You know, that's more not done out of faith and trust, uh, but it looks exactly like a lament as opposed to something like, you know, Psalms, you know, like the, the bulk of the lament Psalms that, are, that Calvin looked at as more of prayers. Uh, and that seems to me very meaningful, uh, uh, a subtle distinction, but a very uh, important one. Uh, that if we act by faith or trust and, and lift up our concerns by faith, by prayer, then we have the freedom to even come into worship and still be able to worship even in the midst of trials. And that becomes an act of worship, you see, not an act of disbelief or, or, or grumbling. We actually can genuinely say that we don't need to have our lives together and, to, and come into the place of worship to God, that we can come broken, frustrated, angry uh uh you know hurt and in the midst of worship to be able to lift that up to the lord in prayer trusting in his sovereignty for resolution it's fantastic it's the just, book the book that always strikes me in this is job which is itself a theodicy you know on our topic yep. uh, but what's interesting to me is that at the end after all of these different approaches to suffering where job says some pretty some pretty um, radical things like I, I curse the day I was born. It should be taken off the calendar. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty extreme in his grief, understandably so. And yet at the end, even though the Lord says, Oh, really you would question me. Well, take a look at creation and then come back and we'll continue the conversation from there. You know, um, but Job is basically vindicated and his response, that his response is presented as a righteous response. The Lord vindicates him and that this heartfelt plea, because it's still honoring of the Lord in his lordship in all of this, that that, that prayer is a vindication, whereas the other prayers, which sound very righteous and very God-honoring, are actually not. They're seen as being false and in some way... Um, you know, running too quickly to a conclusion when it comes to theodicy. Paul, I want to bring you in on this. Uh, you know, some of this discussion about God's role out there, it does raise the question, are we, are some people running a little bit too quickly to a, 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 a local or a proximal answer? Um, you know, do you, what are your thoughts on the, the theodicies that we're seeing out there in the world today? As a general rule of thumb, it's good to be cautious about speaking on behalf of God, you know, to say that this is why um, God has allowed something. Recently, I was thinking about Joseph's narrative. Um, you know, he goes through hell and back. And um, at the end, he almost tentatively says that you know, God allowed all this so I could preserve our family. But even that reflection came I think decades later. I think the, I, but you see, the thing is, I, I think already we, our reformed categories uh, allow us to think well about what is transpiring. You know, like we live in a sinful world. 
you know, whatever explanation there is behind the coronavirus, I'm sure it's multifaceted. You know, it's just, in the end, it is the result of sin. And, um, and while we don't know God, the way God will exactly use this for his glory, uh, we are given the promise that someday when Jesus returns, you know, all will be made well. And I think that that's enough. And, you know, just my last comment is also, I always think about what Van Til said in terms of the creator-creature distinction. There, if we take that distinction seriously, then there are simply going to be things that we're not going to be able to grasp. And I think that we can be okay with that. So, you know, my, my thoughts have always been when it comes to suffering and pain, um, we do need to be okay with not fully knowing um, God's purposes. And sometimes, have you guys ever read that Hallmark card that says, we'll have all our questions answered in heaven? I don't even think that's found in the Bible. You know, like, uh, you know, God doesn't owe us anything. Right? Well, wait, well, but, well, wait, it's, it's in the Hallmark card, though, so it's still. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I mean, my thoughts are we just want to be judicious, slow, when we try to give a very quick uh, explanation as to why God is allowing suffering and so forth. So that would be my two cents on this. Yeah, I, I, I keep thinking about that passage in Luke 13 where uh, you know, there are there, two things that are basically seen as haphazard situation. Pilate mingles the blood of some individuals and sacrifices and the Tower of Siloam falls. People are asking Jesus, you know, to give some kind of explanation. Who is culpable? Who is morally responsible? And he says, repent, lest you too perish, you know. And, and I, I don't think that's Christ giving, as is often the case with these instances where he's being questioned with difficult cases. He's not giving an exhaustive answer on it, and yet he is drawing our attention to the reality of the fact that in this post-fall world, there is great suffering, and it gives us opportunity, not to say this is the reason why this is happening, but it does give us opportunity to turn to the Lord in faith and to, again, renounce sin and its effects in the world and to uh, worship before the living God. Yeah, I agree, and... Paul, I appreciate so much what you just shared, Um, real good uh, theological and pastoral insights. The example of Joseph is such a a great one because here's an example where we actually are given the rationale of why God did what he did. Uh, But I fear that people will take that in principle and think that we can do that with everything, and that's just simply not true. Um, I think to in many ways, we, we do an injustice to God's people by telling them that, um, that we can discern the meaning of what happens uh, in our lives, because we have no promise that we have that. You're absolutely right, I think, in pointing out to Van Til, when there remains a creator-creature distinction, that even in the eternal kingdom, we will have no guarantee that, that we'll have a, rash, uh, a, a, a response to why things happen the way that that they did uh and to scott's point this is to me the the wisdom of job is how job himself wasn't given a resolution to this conflict he was never told why he had to go through what he went through so he ultimately ended ends with no answer to his question of why the uh what we do find in job is that he is now content with the fact that 
the Lord is there, that he has the Lord in his life, and that ultimately he realizes that he didn't need an answer to his, uh, to his question. And that to me seems to me the real benefit of the wisdom that we gain from the book of Job. What we need right now is not an answer to, our, to why this virus exists. What we need is God. We need the Lord uh, and be content with that. And that just seems to me the, the real teaching of scripture and the wisdom that, that we have. This is sort of why I've been reading a lot of Voss lately, uh, partly for you know writing purposes. And, and one thing that uh, people tend to miss in Voss is just his, his uh, he has a fourth point in his definition of biblical theology as being practical, which most people don't realize. But for him, the practicality of biblical theology is is the driving force of scripture to always lead us towards the, the eternal kingdom where we will have that pure communion with God, you know, that, that a bond that is so holy and sanctified and glorified. And, 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 that, and I, that's something that Voss said I've always appreciated. He's pressing us always forward, uh, always to the end, always looking to, the, to glory. And, and uh, that, that seems to be the, the, the direction of these laments as well. The laments never end in lament. They always end with a word of praise. And, and all it takes is just a couple of verses of praise to really content, make the psalmist content. And that just seems to be very meaningful, very profound, very theologically rich, very God-centered, Christ-centered. And, and that to me is the real benefit and gain from what we have in these, in times like this, to kind of reflect and be reminded of those simple truths. Well, I'd like to turn to another book in the Bible that um, deals with the issue of theodicy, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes, in which we hear this refrain from the Kohelet, the preacher, who keeps saying, there's nothing new under the sun. And of course, as we're dealing with this whole threat, with this pandemic today, we keep hearing people, and I myself have said the phrase quite a few times, that this is unprecedented. You know, this is without any kind of precedent or model because we've never been in this situation before. And um, I want to just bring that to the faculty here. What, what do you all think about that we are currently facing an unprecedented threat, an unprecedented situation, and how should we respond? So um, let me take it to you, Tommy, if I could. How do we think about the unprecedentedness of all of this? Yeah, you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you were kind of lurking on Twitter, and and that's been uh, my practice as well. And you know, a lot of the news analysis, a lot of the the comments, you know, are getting at that this has never happened before. Like what we're seeing now and the global scale of it, um, it you know, and and the impact that it's had on on markets and on everyday life has it we just don't have models to, to even really discuss it and when i read stuff like that i get i get nervous i mean i'm, I'm a pretty calm person and, and and pretty lackadaisical personality about such things but uh you know that that puts you on edge uh you know how are we going to survive this becomes becomes the kind of question and then you've got as you mentioned, you know, Ecclesiastes, you've got this idea that there is nothing new under the sun. There's no truly unprecedented event. How, how do we, uh, how do we get those two together? And I, so I've been actually thinking about that theologically and and also practically. Um, I, I, I don't know about uh, you gentlemen, but I think my the, the closest experience that I have to anything 
uh, like this, where, where we have people talking about, you know, the world will never go back to the way it was um, or back to back to normal. The closest thing I have is is 9-11 in, in my, you know, in my lifetime that kind of matches that. In one, it, it all depends on what people mean by that. Like, because of globalization, I do think that disease does spread in a global way that I'd say previous disease did not just in, just because we're not interconnected and um, as we are that we were not as interconnected as we are today and the same holds true for like our global economy so yeah you know in that sense like this is unprecedented because our world has changed on that level i, I think it all has to do with um what people mean by unprecedented but in many ways, you know, plague, disease, death, they're old hat. And, um, you know, I could be wrong about this. Like, I, I'm wrong about most things. But I, I think that this will actually take some time to um, recover from, whether it's economically and so forth. But people move on. I, I mean, do you know what I mean? I think people are very resilient. And I don't mean that as a celebration of humanity. Uh, if anything, I'm always reminded more of the biblical category that as people, we forget, you know, like you, you see this theme in the Old Testament, they go through suffering, they forget, then they return to the Lord and the entire book of James is not forgetting and so forth. And so I do believe that really this coronavirus has simply exposed this illusion of safety that we think we live under. But once uh, a vaccine comes out, I do suspect that uh, people will fall back into their default patterns and um, it will be same old, same old, whether it takes a year, a few years, I do think that we'll just go back into our usual patterns. So I wonder how much of this though, Paul, you know, on that, on that note is like when I hear unprecedented and then the kind of the, the reflection that's on it is everything will change. And, you know, and I guess one of the reasons I, I, I thought of 9-11 as kind of a, a, experience in my life where people were saying that is, well, you know what, that was true. A lot changed and didn't go back, never went back to normal. Uh, but a lot did. And, and, and actually the, you know, to your point about resilience, what happened was this kind of nationwide reckoning with what has happened. And as a result, everything was changed slightly. And yet, you know, life continued and God was faithful and people moved on. And, you know, so I wonder if some of it is just, we don't like change and particularly change. We, we can't predict the results of like, we just don't have a, a concept of moving what moving forward will be like. That for me is a big part of it. Just not knowing how to move forward. That's interesting, Tommy. The way, when I think of unprecedented and I think about the way I've been using it, it hasn't, it hasn't been so much we're going to have to change everything, or maybe this is kind of connected to what you've been experiencing too. For me, it's been, we don't know what to do. You know, yeah. you just said that at the very end, you said, you said not, not knowing how to move forward. I keep thinking, I'm not sure exactly what to do in this situation. I've got these programs, these algorithms built in over 45 years of experience and none of them seem to apply to this situation, right? You know, 9-11, you mentioned as one, and, and growing up in a family, you know, my, think about it, my grandfather, who passed away, you know, over a decade ago, um, really almost 20 years ago now, you know, was 
you know, a child of the depression who lived through world war two, he had this story. Remember he was, he was engaged to my grandmother and he was at my grandmother's house standing in there with his military uniform on and a military and another, you know, uh, officer came to the door to let them know that my grandmother's brother had been killed in a plane in world war two and didn't want to look through the window, saw another guy in a uniform in there. So called him out and made him do it. You know, so my, my grandfather fiance of my grandmother is going in and now informing her parents during their engagement that their son is now killed. And it's just like this, he would tell these stories. He'd be like, I just can't imagine that kind of, society dealing with that kind of upheaval that's so unprecedented right you know so it's it's you know in our lifetime it is 9-11 at least in my lifetime um and yet i do feel like my my memory is haunted with all of these other accounts and it does does even bring to mind you know i saw the other day this may have been yesterday the queen of england was on and i'm not i'm not one to to appeal to monarchs but um you know she was basically talking about the fact that in genera- there will be in, in years ahead, generations will look back on this generation to see how they responded. And I thought, this sounds a lot like World War II type language. As a matter of fact, the first time she went on TV, I think, was with her sister to address the children who are being moved out of London to live in the countryside because of the bombings. This is in 1940, I think, or so. You know, so I feel like we have memories of these things. And yet, yeah, for our life, and even in light of 9-11, you know, there's, there's, an, un, there's, an, there's an unprecedented nature to this, both in the, the quantity. Actually, I think New York just recently hit a death toll that is higher than the 9-11 death toll in New York. And also in quality and the way that this is like a long, slow burn. It's not, it didn't happen on a, on a clear Tuesday morning. It's happened over the course of the spring. Which, by the way, is talk about a common grace that this is all taking place during a relatively pretty spring. I think sometimes, yeah. praise God, this isn't in the, the dead of winter. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, when we, if we take just the word unprecedented in a most basic word, yeah, it's, it's hard to speak, I guess, that way, you know, we, something even, you know, biblically like the flood, uh, was so destructive in a global sense. Um, you know, I, you know, 9-11 definitely had that sense for our generation. I could think of Y2K as well as being a time when people were genuinely scared that this was going to be the end of the world. Uh, it's actually similar to kind of what we're seeing now. If you remember from Y2K, people uh, building up in bulk on, on water supply, canned goods, and, and things like that. Um, for me, I guess, uh, in a more personal sense, uh, I can still remember the LA riots back in the early 1990s as being sort of an unprecedented event in the sense that it sort of began uh, a development that uh, that has changed, uh, at least for me, a portion of uh, a community that's very close to me in a way that and that we've never gone before. You know, uh, the, the LA riots in the early 90s saw the uh, Korean community in LA being particularly targeted for looting yeah, and things like right. that. And, uh, and these were not, you know, people I'm reading about here uh, back in the newspapers, you know, they, they didn't have the internet at least back then. Um, 
you know, these weren't just names. These were friends of mine. These were, you know, family members that I knew, moms and dads that I knew, and, and they were in front and center. And I still remember the image of a friend's dad uh, on the rooftop with a, a rifle in his hand to protect his his uh, his store from looters. I mean, wow. it was a scary time. And, and I remember, you know, my friends and others really taking this, really upset by what was going on and, and taking the charge to kind of rebuild the community, rebuild LA and, and, and rally together people, call for rallies and, and support groups and things of this nature. And I remember talking to my mom about it and my mom saying how proud she was to see my generation who, you know, my parents always saw us as being sort of a bunch of irresponsible kids who, who would never really take uh, life uh, seriously to heart because, you know, and, but here we were doing that and, and how she was so encouraged to see a, that generation, my generation kind of come forward and, 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 and it's never really been the same. You could really kind of see them kind of developing from there and in an unprecedented uh, type of way. I think the tragedy would be, you know, the good that we are able to glean from the, the, from the COVID-19 thing that we're seriously suffering through now and to see the way that I think Scott, you once commented on how how uh, in, in, encouraged it was to see people actually come to support for like widows and and for uh, senior citizens and do it so quickly. You know, it'd be really tragic if if once this thing passes and it's and it will that we all just kind of revert back to life as normal before, going to kind of ignoring the particular key people that we have shown some real care and love for now. Uh, that that would be really sad and really unfortunate to see. Yeah. Hey, Tommy. In the midst of incredible change, one of the things we do is take stock, right? And we we ask what, how we've been spending our days and are these things valuable? And what you know, for me, what has my hope been on? Where where do I where am I anchored? Um, and in the midst of a lot of change and not being able to go into work and see you guys and, uh, and, and be physically present at church. And in, in the midst of all of those kinds of changes, I found myself finding comfort in daily rituals that haven't changed. Uh, one of the most basic, this isn't a spiritual, as you, as you will see, this is not a spiritual ritual, but one of the most basic for me is making coffee. Um, it's, I'm all manual in the coffee making department and it hasn't changed for me because I roast my own beans in this little popcorn popper and I've got stockpiles of green beans that will never go bad. Like, so it's, it's one of those things that I can project forward and say, yeah, I'm good for about six months uh, if the world ends and that gives me comfort. And it reminds me that there are some things in my life that are far more significant to that, that are far, that are, uh, foundationally more secure than that, that will also never change. Um, and that I need to be more focused and more intentional and more disciplined in those things. You know, as you put it earlier, Peter, that, that vertical relationship with the Lord, that will not change no matter what. The, pr the, the gathering of God, uh, of, the, of, of the people with their God. We're in a period of fasting right now, but we still gather weekly, at least spiritually. And, and those, those things are constant um, and God will protect them until the end. And, and I need to have my hope and ground in those things. And, and to your point, 
and maintain that when the crisis is over uh, and, and things move back into, into some relatively new version of normal. Yeah, well, I think about that, that being a part in this, which is so new in all of this, and is not something, I, you know, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, who would have thought a few months ago that we would posit a world where we didn't meet together to worship and that that was the right and righteous right. thing to do, and we wouldn't do it for a whole, no one would in the United States pretty much for four months, you know, or however long this is going to go on, two months of the year, it just sounds outlandish. And yet I also hope to, to your point too, I'm realizing all of these things, not just, Oh man, look how much I long to be with the body of Christ, which is true, but just how much my own uh, existence requires thoughtful, deliberate interaction and, and looking to gather together with other people, particularly now that we're doing this, with neighbors who are on their government approved walks on our sidewalk and we're, um, you know, nodding and waving and talking across the lawn to each other as they walk by, you know, it's bringing out all of these things that I think even in theory I knew to be true. And yet it's creating these vignettes in which I get to see them actually find expression uh, in this, you know, in this life. Paul Jean, you're clearing your throat because you have a profound idea. No, this is, you know, I, I'm still thinking about Tommy's coffee. I'm always lagging behind you guys. I am always also <laughs> thinking about my coffee. Now we all know where to find no, I feel like I've learned so much about you guys through this podcast. <laughs> Not just this one. I, I've really just been, you know, it's weird. Um, you know, we work so much together in one sense, but in some ways, um, being a part has uh, given us this really unique and great opportunity just to talk, you know, at length, because in one sense, we don't feel hurried. And so, you know, again, like we said before, I want to be very careful not to say something foolish, like this is why God allowed the coronavirus. Obviously not, right? But um, at the same time, it's really been just great to hear about everyone's idiosyncrasies or uh, daily habits and so forth. So I, I was falling over the coffee. <laughs> I think it's an important point to be able to say something. Like I don't need to, I can say I've learned this lesson. I can learn how much, I've learned how much I love spending time with my wife. I've learned how much I love spending time with my kids. I've learned what my faith is. Like I've learned these things and I can, I can say and be introspective and meditate on the word and say, this is good and this is bad. I think, Paul, to your point, one of the things that can happen is when we imply that that is the reason for everybody, like that's the reason that everybody has experienced this, then I think we're, or this is the sole reason, or this is God's primary purpose, then we're really getting, you know, in dangerous territory. You're talking about, Tommy, you're talking about going back to the issue of theology, yeah. the idea of, right. I think Paul can say, like, I'm learning these lessons and this has been good for me. And I'm glad and thankful that we've been able to have this kind of conversation and not feel like you're making some cosmic statement about God's full purpose and design. I've been working on Ezekiel a lot and it's interesting. He is making the same point or a similar point about the exile where he's talking to this group of refugees who are in the Kabar peninsula, not peninsula, Kabar canal system. And they're probably 
involved in some kind of agrarian activity as captives from the Babylonian exile. And he's talking to them and reflecting on the coming exile that's coming to Jerusalem. And he keeps telling them for the apostate, this is going to be judgment. And for the faithful, this is going to be just loving discipline. Oh yeah. Okay. You know, now that's taking a redemptive point on the theodicy of the exile. Right. But even in that case, one event has multiple, multiple applications, and we have to be careful. Even there where you have a, a divinely inspired prophet giving his interpretation of the historical event, there's multiple applications for an event. Can, can one thing be merely a part of the horror of living in this post-fall world, and can it be in another way, a way of drawing us closer to Christ, and can it be in another way to kind of expound on that drawing closer to Christ, filling out the sufferings of Christ, you know, for the faithful, or can it also be a consequence of sin? The Bible authorizes all kinds of explorations and explanations of suffering. And um, there's no reason to believe that one thing can't be multiple things or be different things for different people, you know, um, depending on, depending on the situation. And yet also with that said, we have to recognize we often won't know. We won't get to know the answer at the very end. You know, for me, I, as somebody said recently, just getting back to this theodicy, somebody had commented on the fact that this is, this is a divinely required rest. And, you know, there's a biblical authorization for that idea, you know, that the author of, uh, of Chronicles and the book of Leviticus both highlight that the exile was because the people hadn't given the land a rest. And so it had to be given a rest. So the exile was actually Sabbath for the land, you know? Um, And yet, of course, at the same time, we have no idea. Is it possible that, that this whole situation is creating an opportunity of rest for some people? Absolutely. And yet at the same time, do we know that that's what that is then kind of exhaustively globally across the board? You know, no, absolutely not. We don't know that. And so for some, it's the opposite of that. It's, exactly. For some, it's great suffering. Right. And that was true of the exile, too. You know, I think people sometimes ask, well, what, why was the exile there? Was it because of Manasseh's sin? Well, it's kind of kings. Or was it because of Jehoiakim's, uh, you know, uh, return to idolatry after Josiah's reforms? Well, yeah, that's Jeremiah. You know, was it because they're not giving the land rest? Well, yeah, that's Moses and, uh, you know, in Leviticus and this Chronicles. Which one is it? Well, there's a variety of reasons because human life and human experience, God is, this, God is one and the same, but human life and human experience is diverse. Do any of you ever almost hesitate to speak about your experience in a positive way? Because like for me, one of the things is, I think I shared this in an earlier podcast. I have had more consecutive meals with my family than ever before. And um, in one sense, my wife and I, we were joking that, well, this is what most people's lives are like. It's, it's nice just to have regular, you know, meals with your family. And so in that sense, it's been, um, this season has been, if I can even use this language, a blessing. But then I am very hesitant to ever share things like that because it can almost sound insensitive. I mean, we've had people lose their spouses, their jobs, and under you know terrible situations. Like I read a story about how 
one married couple had to say bye to each other through like FaceTime or something along those lines. And so no, during this season, I've actually become, I've noticed more quiet, just even about how I, I've been processing the situation. But I'm wondering if you felt that way at all or not really. I felt that. I was just affirming uh, Paul's point. Uh, I have thought exactly that. There, there have been things that uh, I've experienced here by being kind of locked in the area that I've actually really enjoyed. This isn't a good time for everybody. And there are people who are genuinely wrestling, struggling physically, philosophically, emotionally. And, and, and I agree, it, it does come across as insensitive. I'm not sure how to do it though. I mean, it does seem we need to address both the positive as well as the... the we do have a we do have a nice biblical category to think about that, and 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 one which we can lean on, and and actually it's it's right there in in Jesus's lament in in Hebrews in Hebrews five, we have a sympathetic high priest, and I think even as we're recognizing, and and and, and this is particularly important when we're when we're talking along the lines of theodicy, even while we're recognizing that God has a purpose and that there may be some good things that have come out of this for some people. We also have this category of, of weeping with those who weep, of, of sympathizing with um, and, and coming alongside and bearing the burdens of those who, who, are, who are not having that kind of experience. And, and that's yeah. all the more challenging in, in, in quarantine. How do, how do you bear somebody's burdens from six feet away? But at the same time, there's, we, we, we have that kind of pastoral or seeking the good of the other emphasis that can allow us to be free to say, here's what I'm learning, here's the good that has come out of this for me, without making everyone put a smile on their face, and, and then recognizing also that my good should be used in service of somebody else who, who doesn't have that. Yeah, I, for me, this shows up more with like making finding humor in all of this this situation and i think it's partly just my personality when things are when when things are uncertain or frightful or there's some kind of mass movement there's there's a joy in finding humor in it and there's been a few times where i've I, i've found something funny and i've gone to send it out to you know my I've got some friends and family who are on this kind of internal text group and I'm going to send it out and I pause and I think, I don't, I know some people are, this is, you know, got people on that list who lost their job in the middle of all of this. And uh, there's people in that list who, including myself, who have extended family who have been diagnosed with coronavirus and it's not that funny. And yet kind of pausing for a moment and it's not making light of the situation. It's never that it's never like this idea of, of mocking someone's loss, but also recognizing, I think that there is, yeah, there, there, there is this time to weep with those who weep and to be honest about that. And I think, honestly, I think we're all going to have a lot of opportunity for that in the days to come. Um, but also just, you know, the, uh, you're being able to find some kind of some kind of humor in the middle of this all because there's not a whole lot of humor. You know, I saw a meme recently the other day where someone mapped out the court social distancing quarantine with with pictures of Matthew McConaughey from different movies and 
the first one is him and his Christ and his Cadillac, you know, kind of looking suave. And the second one is that's like March 1st, the March 14th, you know, he's, yeah, he's smoking a cigarette and it's looking kind of hard. And then, you know, March 23rd, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's Matthew McConaughey from Dallas buyers club, you know, just kind of showing his degradation physically. You know, that's how everybody's dealing with quarantine. And I thought, you know, it's funny. And, uh, and it kind of does reflect like this crazy situation too. Right. Um, but yeah, I have, I have thought about that, Paul, to your question. You know, I've, I've, I've thought about the audience and the groups that I'm with as I'm, as I'm thinking through how I myself naturally respond to an event like this, right? It does seem perhaps, you know, it, we can't allow our folks to interpret this all on their own. I fear that if they do that, it, it's going to be nothing but just dread, uh, horror, um, and fear. It just seems pastorally wise that we give them grounds to interpret this appropriately. To see that, yeah, it's, it's hard, and we don't want to minimize that. But at the same time, the Lord is able to redeem this in some way, in some capacity that we can experience in our lives now. And to help our people be able to see it that way does seem to me um, uh, a good thing to do. And if we can experience that ourselves and help our people to kind of see it in a similar way, in a way that is still sensitive and meaningful and gracious and loving, you know, there does seem to be some value to that. Well, let's, let's wrap it up. Any recommendations, anything that struck you as new or something you want draw attention to for people listening to this podcast? Well, Scott, I had one thought. Um, I have been working from home for many years in one sense, in one sense, right? And whereas my wife, she's a nurse. And so she goes to work and then when she comes home, she has to stop because like there's no work for her to do. And I think for some people who are working from home extensively for the first time, they're going to experience something along these lines, like where the work never stops, right? And I think it's very helpful to set a time when you put your laptop, your phone away, and you're done. Because um, I think for many uh, states, this uh, lockdown will continue for at least eight to 10 more weeks, right? And um, it's good to set a limit for just how long you're gonna work and when to stop. And so that's just something I've been thinking about on my own for myself, because you can just keep going, you know? And so that's something I've been trying to be very disciplined about that after uh, like six or 7 p.m., just the laptop goes away and, and I don't feel guilty about it, that's fine. Great, yeah, that is hard, I notice. I haven't actually had a chance to have the rest yet. I feel like I'm mm -hmm. working just as much, if not more right yeah. now than I have been before. And I'm not sure why that is. That's, I mean, part of it is the ramping up and changing things and, and getting things online, but you know, it's not like I'm the only one doing that, but you're right. I do notice I have to really strategically think about when to turn it off, to turn off the spigot. I recall so, Paul, uh, or I recall, Paul, what you just shared and what Scott just shared is uh, is so true. Uh, when I was church planting way back in the day, you know, I didn't have an office. The, the house was my office. The 
the seminary back in those days, RTS, we didn't have an office either, really. Um, uh, everything I did kind of was out of the home. So home life became a mixture of both work and relaxation. But because it's all here at home, you, I never really felt like I did either really well. It always felt like I was either always working or I was never, ever really resting. And, uh, and that's just one of the struggles that, uh, that you kind of face it. I, you know, I sympathize. It, it's actually a bit not too different now than it was before. And I did exactly what you did. I, I localized one area of the house. This is work. In fact, you know, when I get up, I actually physically got dressed to go out to work. But I just, you know, went across into my office. And so it, even as a joke now to my kids, I'll say, hey, I'm going to go to work now. And all I did was just walk into the next room. Uh, that way, that mentality is there that here, here in this place, I work. When I step out, now I can kind of uh, rest and, and, and just kind of sectioning things off like that really helped. Homeschooling had the same issue. You know, you, you almost get the same thing that the kids are never, ever not doing school or they're never, ever really just playing because home life and school life are just so integrated uh, together. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I was reminded of that as well. Um, Peter, we all are desperate to know, uh, especially my kids, um, we've been reading through uh, Harry Potter uh, verbally as a family, and we're, we're desperate to know where you are in, in the series. Um, our, our kids' friends, they all tell how old they are by where they are, what book they're on. So how, how old are you, uh, Peter? I'm very young. I, I'm just uh, getting to the sorting hat in book one. Um, I guess the one thing I've been intrigued by, this has absolutely no redemptive value at all in terms of Christian life, but Harry Potter is sort of the anti-hero. I never really thought about it that way. He, he's actually, you know, he's talking to serpents, which has obvious biblical uh, implications, you know, allusions in terms of not being a good thing. Moses raised up the serpent, right? Well, uh, all right, fair enough, I guess. But, uh, you know, at least in the Harry Potter world, that, that doesn't seem to be a, a good thing. And, and then he actually has a desire to be in the house of Slytherin but yet he chooses to not be. I mean, you know, you know, this isn't, you know, good theology per se, but I just found it intriguing that you have an anti-hero here at this young boy. And uh, so that was one thing that I found kind of uh, intriguing, how a lot of the uh, major heroes in our day-to-day, -day, it just seems are these, these problematic, troubled men or women, you know, uh, not necessarily the old, uh, you know, Clark Kent, Superman type, type guys. We like our heroes gritty. We'll have to devote a whole podcast yeah. to this, Peter. Your your interpretation of Harry Potter, because because I ha I have some differences of opinion here. I'm going to come on that episode and be a total pedant who doesn't know much at all about Harry Potter, other than maybe the 3.5 movies of theirs that I've seen of theirs, as if Harry Potter and the team has a bunch of movies. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm going to come on and 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 just say totally ignorant things about Harry Potter. And uh, to cause it to make everybody else look good, I'll be the anti-hero for you. I'll be the Harry Potter for you, Peter Lee. I've got a totally mundane recommendation for the uh, for the whole group here. I, I was clicking around on YouTube after telling you that I'm working way too much. I'm going to tell you now how I was clicking around on YouTube aimlessly, and um, 
There's this guy, Rick Beato. I think I can just go ahead and say who, what his name is. He's got a channel, B-E-A-T-O. He lives in Atlanta, but he's got to be from Jersey, judging by his, his, uh, his accoutrements. Um, but he does this whole music thing. It's all this whole thing about how to play, you know, guitar riffs and how to have perfect pitch. However, he has this one reoccurring series, which is called What Makes This Song Great? where he goes through great rock songs. It's almost entirely rock. And he breaks them all down by their different tracks and tells you why it's a great song. And you have to go listen to it because even if you don't particularly like the song he's studying, you will love it by the time he's done with it. You know, and he, he, he goes through anything from like, you know, you know, Toto songs to Led Zeppelin to what did I hear? Boston. Oh, he does Boston more than a feeling. Listen to him describe why that's a great song. And you will then fall in love with the song and want to listen to it over and over again. If you hadn't already loved it already. So what makes this song great? Um, it's a lot of fun. Well, I, one thing that I kind of started that is, um, it's been recommended to me in the past, uh, and I've never really done it before. Uh, but uh, you know how uh, uh, my teacher, or Scott, our teacher of Hebrew, Mark Vitale, does these daily dose of Hebrew things? Um, well, I found that they actually have a daily dose of Greek as well. And um, my Greek is extremely rusty. And so one of the, my New Year's resolutions actually for this year has been to try to get my Greek back up to, up to, uh, up to par. And so I decided to, you know, now I can actually do it, do, down, do some of this daily dose of Greek uh, and do that. Uh, it's about a two to five minute little thing each day. And I, I actually have uh, found that really enjoyable to kind of brush up on old, uh, well, on New Testament Greek and just like one verse a day and, and, and kind of slowly build that up again. So that, that's been actually a, a lot of fun. Well, now you make me feel bad for just watching YouTube videos about Boston songs. Well, I, you know what I've been wanting to read? I've, I've got a lot. Um, I've I've seen a lot in my feed the the kind of like don't waste the corona, don't waste your quarantine kind of stuff, and it reminds me I never read "Don't Waste Your Cancer" by by John Piper, and I don't I don't know anything about it other than that people that it's on people's recommended list, and I, I it's something that I would want to uh to look at so i've got that on my uh on my to-do list um and then we've been trying to maximize our free time just uh yeah owning the owning the family time um peter you mentioned this a couple weeks ago the the family games and things like that so we've been we've been engaged uh been engaged in those kinds of things um and prepping for prepping for classes over the summer so no, no profound uh, insights for me in this regard. Yeah, speaking of this summer, keep an eye out if anyone's paying attention to this stuff. The uh, summer classes are going to be done in a different and exciting way. And um, keep an eye out to see what's available. And there will be a lot more communications through the other RTS feeds um, so that you can learn more about what that looks like. But we should be announcing this pretty soon uh, in terms of the summer class listings. All right. With that said, thank you to uh, the panel for coming out and being a part of this. Um, it's great to see you guys as always. And I look forward to doing this again next week. Thank you.
Take care. It's good to see you. Stay safe. Bye-bye. See you guys again soon.